Okay, y'all, before we dive in, I want to bring attention to something. I don't just give y'all information on old cases. I do like to shed light on current issues with our black and brown communities. Last week, I was tagged under a post and the creator, her name is Janin. I'll plug her information in the show notes. Uh, but she was talking about her sister's homicide on a TikTok video. I listened to the video and I immediately felt inclined to reach out to her, you know, just to see just to see what I could do to advocate, bring awareness. And we did end up having a phone conversation. Jaden warned me ahead of time that this was something that should be on a Lifetime movie, but y'all, I still was not prepared. Uh, so I'm going to give y'all a little bit of the information. Jaden's sister, Kayla, she's a victim of a homicide. Jaden not only talked to her killers, but at one point the case could have been solved if it hadn't been for the piss poor police efforts in the investigation. So I'm currently gearing up my notes to bring y'all Kayla's story and then have Jane and hop on Black Girl True Crime so we can talk about it. Because if I'm going to do one thing, I'm going to tell y'all how the police don't give a fuck and then hold them accountable. Um, but this baby, she was held hostage. They tried to use her for ransom. And by the time they found her, she was alive, but she did succumb to her injuries. And the police are trying to tell Jane and that Kayla told them that she fell down a flight of stairs. But how? when there is proof that she was unresponsive from the time that she was found up until her death. But stay tuned for Kayla's story, y'all, because I, I got to bring this case to Black Girl True Crime. Um, but now let's hop into the episode. Hey, y'all. Thank y'all for tuning in to Black Girl True Crime. I'm your host, Kay Simone, and this episode is about Anthony Sowell, the Cleveland Strangler. I'm going to give y'all a major trigger warning right in the intro for rape, brutality, and deep human suffering. Listen, all of us woke up today with the opportunity to change our own narrative, and we are so lucky for that because 11 beautiful black women did not. Because a man was smart enough to understand that the community considered them as less than, we have got to change the way we look at people who suffer from the illness of drug addiction. They laid decaying among piles of trash and filth, raped, beaten, and strangled, their choices stripped away from them, all because Anthony Sowell understood that the authorities wouldn't give a fuck and their communities would turn their backs on them. After Crystal's disappearance in May of 2007, Tashana Culver, LaShonda Long, Michelle Mason, Tanya Carmichael, Kim Yvette Smith, Nancy Cobbs, Amelda Hunter, Janice Webb, Talisha Forson, and Diane Turner also disappeared. The world is fucked up, y'all. Let's talk about it. So October 28, 2009, the Cleveland Police Department respond to a rape complaint filed by a woman named Latundra Billups. Now, they pull up to 12205 Imperial Avenue with a warrant to search the property and to arrest her attacker, Anthony Sowell. Anthony is not at home, and the police, they look around, and they find two decomposing bodies lying on the third level of the house, and that is when everything just went to hell. It, it, it went to shit, y'all. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and give you some background um, on Cleveland, some background on the Cleveland Police Department, and then some background on Anthony before we get into the nitty fucking gritty. And again, major trigger warning. If you need to skip this episode, I completely understand. You can catch me next time. Uh, so here we go, y'all. So 
Now, they find 11 bodies total inside and around Anthony Sowell's home. And the most shocking factor was that the police, they weren't even investigating their disappearances. It was the smell and the attempted rape of Latundra Billups, and that's what got him caught. So I started the descent down the rabbit hole um, when I saw, I think it was I Survived a Serial Killer. And I listened to what Vanessa Gay said about her experience and how she was failed. And I was like, hell no. Nah. I, I just knew that this had to be the next episode because to call to call the police after being raped and seeing a headless corpse, she managed to talk her way out of death and they wouldn't even come to her to take a report. So not, hell no, nah. I'm, I'm not even going to spare the Cleveland Police Department. But let's talk about the times we were in as well as the area. So Cleveland, Ohio, I'm gonna have to give y'all some numbers. 47% of the population are black residents and an estimated 91% of Cleveland's east side are also black residents. Now, despite almost a decade of police reform, including the public trying to push for more black officers, still not a lot has changed. Now, as of November of last year, two thirds of the Cleveland Police Department are white. And out of that 1,309 officers that were on the force, only 313 of them were black. And even Cleveland's Hispanic communities made up 12%, yet there were only 129 Hispanic officers on the force. So not a lot of representation. Now, by 2022, Cleveland's police department paid out nearly $40 million in settlements for police misconduct. And a former police officer, Jason Goodrick, said, police union leaders have thwarted reforms by using threats of work stoppages, and the fear of crime to sway politicians. Now, the police union, they were they are so fucking corrupt. I was about to say they were. No, they are so corrupt and powerful that even the residents took notice. So, last year, the East Side showed the fuck out and more than 30,000 people, they tried to vote for this Civilian Police Oversight Board. And this board would have the ability to override different decisions made by the police chiefs and the and to they wanted to be able to fire officers as their members saw fit. Excuse my jumbling of the words. But yeah, so they wanted to be able to override their decisions and fire their asses if need be. Uh, but the union tried to block this before they could even vote. And they threatened to sue. And this was the same tactic that they used the last time that the city tried to stand up to them. Now, the president of the Cleveland Police Union, his name is Jeff Fulmer. And he said... And I quote, at the end of the day, we really had no say in this commission process whatsoever. It's all been smoke and mirrors, but we get it. More than 30,000 people voted for this, but I don't even know how exactly they want officers held accountable because if you go to the inner city and you talk to any law-abiding citizen, they want the police. They want these little dope boys and all these guys that are carrying guns off the street. But it's the one or two cases that make the media every 10 years that have them saying we have to hold officers accountable now, end quote. Fuck you, Jeff. Please go all the way to hell. So 2013, it was discovered that East Cleveland cops were framing drug suspects. In 2012, during a high-speed chase that involved 104 Cleveland police officers, they fired their weapons 137 times at two unarmed individuals. 2014, they killed 12-year-old Tamir Rice and a former police chief for the east side. His name is Scott Gardner. Listen, 
This man was indicted for aggravated theft, telecommunications fraud, tampering with evidence, theft in office, grand theft, and for passing bad checks. And this department is also known for hiring officers that couldn't pass background checks with other police departments. And the Cleveland Police Department is the only department in this goddamn nation to have been investigated twice by the Department of Justice for Civil Rights Violations. Now, I'm not even going to stay in the topic for too long, but y'all can Google the history of corruption. So, yeah, fuck Jeff. I don't even know what he's talking about. So, East Cleveland, people are saying that it's Ohio's most dangerous city. And basically, you're not safe on damn near any street. But just to look at how the east side of Cleveland fell into ruin, because it actually used to be pretty wealthy from what I have seen on reports. But basically, minorities began to move to the east side, and then white folks left, and then they went to the suburban areas. So the east side of Cleveland began to suffer financially. And then there was not, you know, any money coming in to make up what they took. Now, just so yeah you as we all know we got impoverished neighborhoods and people trying to make a way out of no way drugs and crime and then they're all under a corrupt police department so moving on to anthony Sowell. anthony Sowell, he did not have the best childhood um i would say he was the abuser and the abused of course feel bad for the child but fuck his ass wholeheartedly uh, now, Anthony Edward Sowell was born at Meridia Huron Hospital to Claudia Garrison and Thomas Sowell on August 19, 1959 in East Cleveland. Now, Thomas Sowell, he wasn't in the picture, so Claudia Garrison was the primary adult figure in his life. Claudia had three other children named Trusha, Patricia, and Owen, and a social worker would later testify and say that the family tree had generations of sexual abuse, promiscuity, absent fathers, epilepsy, heart problems, drug abuse, mental illness, and birth defects. Like, goddamn, that, that is a lot. Uh, now, the Sowell uh, house, again, it was not the place you wanted to be in, um, but his younger half-sister, Trusha, said that Anthony was happy. He liked attention when he was young and that they were always able to the, uh, endure the abuse that was going on. But she also said he can be mean and aggressive. Tresha said Anthony would treat her like someone off the street at times, and it, it only got worse. So Anthony lived with his mother, Claudia, his grandmother, Irene, and his siblings. They moved around often, and Anthony hopped from one school to the other, while Claudia and his grandmother, Irene, tried to find better living conditions. Anthony's older sister, Patricia, suffered from an asthmatic condition, and it was said to have been debilitating at times to the point of where doctors told her she shouldn't have children. But by the time she was 18 years old, she had five kids. And by the time she died in August of 1969 from chronic bronchitis, she had seven children total. Prior to her death, Patricia had come to live with her mother and grandmother, and the three of them tried to raise all the kids in one household. Now, when Anthony was around the age of seven, he noticed that his older nephew was forcing his niece into a closet. He didn't realize it at the time, but he was raping her. And... This happened, when again, when he was seven, but I believe before the houses merged uh, because he said that he was at his sister's house uh, when it happened. So, mm, that's just, 
that's just sad. But I'm, I'm going to get into how it really gets worse. So Anthony is also quoted saying that the same older nephew began to molest him later. Um, but he really couldn't remember what it was exactly. Um, but at one point he was pissed off because he bit him while he was trying to molest him. So he bit his older nephew somewhere on his arm, probably right above his wrist. This is interesting because in the interviews I have seen with his family, they really couldn't recall Anthony ever being molested or abused. Um, but again, this may have happened before the families moved in together. Now, when Patricia passed away, the kids were officially under the care of Irene and Claudia and shit just hit the fan. Everyone was living in, in one house on East Boulevard and the house was so packed and full of chaos. Some of the kids didn't even understand their exact relationship to Claudia. And remember the name Leona Davis, but she said her mother Patricia loved kids. Like Patricia loved her babies, but when Patricia died, it was clear that Claudia did not share the same love for them. So while living in the house on East Boulevard, the children were abused severely. Claudia would beat them with anything she could lay her hands on and Irene would beat them with her cane. Like, bitch, like, damn, like, it's bad enough I lost my mama. Like, they didn't even understand why they were getting beaten. And reports came out that the children were tied up and beaten until bloody. And again, they never quite understood why they were being punished. Um, one of them said that colorism may have been a motive because Claudia was fond of the children who had lighter skin tones. I will be plugging a good book called Nobody's Woman, The Crimes and Victims of Anthony Sowell, The Cleveland Strangler, in my show notes, um, as well as some other good articles because I wish I could fit everything in this episode, y'all, but I can't. But there is a really good website that covers all of the victims in depth. So... Again, so as I mentioned before, the nieces and nephews, they, they never really saw Anthony getting abused, but they said he was allowed to watch. And that's, that is just so fucked up. But um, eventually everyone moves to Page Avenue. And this is in 1970. A beautiful home. Everyone basically had their own space. Tresha, who was four at the time, slept in the room with Claudia. Patricia's son, Robin, and Anthony slept in the attic. And the other children had their own space and were able to play outside after their chores were finished. But there was extreme isolation. They weren't allowed to have friends and they didn't really celebrate their birthdays and the beatings only got worse. Anthony's nephew, Jesse Darnell Hatcher, would later testify and say he was beaten so badly by Claudia that he never wore shorts because of the scarring. And they, again, they, they didn't know why um, Claudia hated them. They didn't understand um, but they said the house was described as a war zone, constant screaming and yelling and more brutal punishments that included the children being forced to strip naked. And Claudia would tie them to a banister at the foot of the stairs and beat them with an extension cord. And at times they were woken up to Claudia or Irene beating them. Like, have you ever been woke up out your sleep? Like, getting your ass whooped? That shit is not fun and they didn't do anything to deserve it. Uh, now, while in school, Anthony was bullied and ridiculed often. In one situation, he was getting bullied for being a virgin. But his niece, Leona, said that there was no way that this nigga was a virgin because he was consistently raping her. So the boys in the house began to sexually assault the young girls. Now, in 1972, Anthony started raping Leona and she was 12 and he was 13. So Anthony was raping Leona, his brother Owen who was also known as Uncle Junior, and Robin was also raping Leona. 
as well as her twin sister Ramona and their younger sister Renee. But Anthony target, targeted Leona specifically by stealing from Claudia and then blaming Leona so he could watch her have to get undressed and beaten. Leona said that the male family member sexually abused her just about every day. Anthony would demand that Leona go upstairs and when she refused, they would fight. And on one occasion, she, she received a black eye. Now, Ramona and Leona, they would try to run away, but they were always brought back like this fucked up ass system. Uh, so Leona devised a plan to set the house on fire. She said, and I quote, I set some clothes on fire in Claudia's room while she was at work. It was summertime and everyone else was downstairs. I went up there, closed the door. I had some matches and I lit those clothes. After the fire department showed up, she confessed and was finally admitted to a children's psychiatric hospital where people started to believe, you know, her claims of what the fuck was going on in the house. So back to Anthony. So he was around 18 or 19 when he joined the United States Marine Corps in January of 1978. I did read a few reports that prior to leaving for service, he had gotten a woman pregnant. Um, but I guess one monkey ain't stopped no show because he still uh, went the fuck on. But Anthony did a lot of bouncing around during his service and he was discharged in 85. During his career, he received a Good Conduct Medal with a One Service Star, a Sea Service Deployment Ribbon, a Certificate of Commendation, a Meritorious Mast, y'all let me know if I pronounced that wrong, I do apologize, and two Letters of Appreciation. But Anthony said, well, all that shit and he still ain't worth a damn. And there are more deaths that may be connected to him outside of the bodies that were found on the Imperial Avenue property. So Anthony, he gets out of the military and he moves to 1878 Page Avenue in East Cleveland. This is the house that he grew up in. And the rapes and murders, they did not begin on Imperial Avenue, but on Page. On May 29, 1988, 36-year-old Rosalind Garner was found strangled in her home on Hayden Avenue. Garner's sister had been trying to reach her and couldn't, so she stops by the house to try and check up on her. And Hayden is about three minutes from Page Avenue. Uh, Rosalind, she lived alone and worked as a financial analyst, and her family told police she had to have known her killer because of how cautious she was. Now, Rosalind Garner's case is still unsolved. Uh, Carmela, yeah, Carmela Karen Prater, she lived on Page Avenue and was found beaten and frozen in an abandoned home on First Avenue, February 27, 1989. Carmela was only 27 years old and worked as a nurse's assistant. At the time of her death, her daughter was seven. First Avenue, like Hayden, is not that far um, from Anthony's home, and her body suffered so much damage from the beating that the coroners were never able to determine her cause of death. This case is linked to Anthony so well, but is still unsolved. March 28, 1989, the body of Mary Thomas was found near an abandoned building on First Avenue. It was thought that her murder was connected to Anthony so well, but DNA linked her to another serial killer named Joseph Harwell. Two black serial killers preying on the same neighborhood at the same damn time. This is a hot ass mess. So July of 1989, Anthony rapes a woman named Melvette. And her name is Melvette Sockwell and he rapes her at knife point. It was just a normal day. Melvette said the kids were playing everywhere and the house smelled like freshly baked, baked cornbread. Anthony's sister was asleep on the couch and Anthony asked Melvette to come with him to the third floor of the house and she agrees. 
Soon as she walks into the room, Anthony slammed the door behind them. And I'm going to start plugging in these trigger warnings. So Melvet looks at him like, what, what the fuck are you doing? And Anthony says, and I quote, sister, you're in trouble, end quote. And then he locked the door and drags a heavy suitcase in front of it before turning on Melvet with the knife. Anthony raped and beat Melvet for over 12 hours. Over the course of that time, he would make her undress, rape her, and tell her to put her clothes back on. While napping, he bound her and stuffed cloth inside of her mouth. As soon as he woke up, he choked her until she passed out. Like, what a fucking monster. And have y'all, do y'all know what Anthony so well looks like? He looks like a deep sea fucking fish. This man looks like the scariest catfish ever. Like, ugh. Like, it gives me the, the skeevies. But... Yeah, literally a monster. And at one point she's praying and he says, and I quote, you might as well say your prayers because I'm going to kill you. I'm going to beat you and then I'm going to kill you. But now I'm going to sleep first because I'm too tired to kill you right now. End quote. And this nigga went the fuck to sleep. And I know poor Melvette. She was just sitting there like, what the fuck? And while sleeping, Melvette, she's able to signal for help by climbing out of a window and onto the roof. Five, officer, five officers had to help rescue Melvette. Anthony skips out on court, but isn't caught until 1990. On June 24th, a 31-year-old woman, she goes to the police and tells them she met a man named Anthony Sowell and went with him to his house on East 71st Street. Anthony had snuck up behind her and began to choke her. He proceeded to rape her orally, vaginally, and anally. This woman didn't come forward to testify, but police were able to locate Anthony through a rape warrant um, filed by Melvette Sockwell. And the charges were reduced to attempted rape and he gets smacked with a 15-year sentence. During this 15-year sentence, like, there was no rehabilitation for him during this time. He refused many of the treatments and authorities thought this was because he was proclaiming his innocence. A cellmate claimed he refused treatments because his sexual assault charges would make him a target with the other inmates. Probably, yeah, nigga, they, they would have had to deal with you. Um, but yeah, he serves his 15-year sentence, and he decides he's going to do it his way. So after his release in 2005, Anthony moves to 12205 Imperial Avenue to live with his stepmother. And oh yeah, stepmother's name is Sojournal Sowell. So well, my bad. Sojournal so well. Now, she wasn't in good health and was in the hospital a lot, and she actually ends up going into a nursing home. So Anthony had the attic area and the house to himself majority of the time. At this point, he is a registered sex offender. In July of 2005, he started a relationship with a woman named Lori Frazier, and eventually she moves in with him. Anthony worked in a factory until 2007 and then earned a living selling scrap metal. Before going to prison, he was heavily addicted to drugs. And then during his relationship with Lori after prison, he was introduced to drugs again and this time became a heavy alcoholic. Imperial Beverage was across the street or like a couple doors down from Anthony's house. And the owner, he goes by Sam. I'm going to talk about him later, but he said he could physically notice when Anthony began to spiral from drug addiction. And he could be seen buying drugs and his physical appearance and demeanor began to decline. And it wasn't long until the area went from smelling like the local restaurant raised sausage to rotting meat. Anthony's ex-girlfriend Lori Frazier noticed the bad smell in 2006 
and described it as a sickly putrid odor that could be smelled all over the house. Lori, she decides to get clean after the death of her mother, but Anthony wasn't trying to get his shit together and his attitude towards Lori got worse and more violent. So she left his ass. But what's really weird is the fact that Lori smelled the rotting odor in 2006, but Crystal Dozier did not go missing until May of 2007. So I'm kind of wondering, like, what, what, what other victims may have died at 12205 Imperial? So just a little bit about Crystal. She was born in 1971 and was the second oldest of Eugene and Florence Dozier's four children. Crystal went to Alexander Hamilton Jr. High School, then attended John F. Kennedy High. And when she was younger, she loved, you know, chilling with her sister. They would get dressed up in freely matching outfits. And Crystal was seen as the responsible child. And her mother could count on her to keep the house in, in order and to watch her younger siblings. Crystal enjoyed this to an extent. And as a young girl, she spent hours in the kitchen trying to learn uh, from her mother how to cook. So eventually, Crystal does go on to have se uh, seven children and will call her mother Florence every day and ask, has anybody told you today that I love you? And she was living with her fiancé, Louis, on Audubon Road when she went missing. Two separate missing persons reports were filed, and her son would end up walking the streets for the next two years trying to find her. And that is just so fucking sad. That is just so sad. And I do hope y'all go and watch Unseen because it gives you more of a background than what I'm going to put in here. So... A 25-year-old LaShonda Long was the third to go missing, and she was raised on the east side of Cleveland by her father, Jim Allen, and at the time of her disappearance, she had three children and was living near 123rd Street and Imperial Avenue with her boyfriend. And LaShonda, she didn't really remain in constant contact with her family, but always made sure to call her father and her aunt on special occasions. On her aunt's birthday in August of 2008, LaShonda didn't call. And Vanessa Gay never saw her again either. One thing that I didn't know is that Vanessa knew um, knew of LaShonda. So trigger warning, just trigger warning all through. And one thing that I did not me uh, mention is that after Crystal Dozier, um, Tishana Culver went missing next. And then it was LaShonda. And so now we're going to get into the attack of Vanessa Gay. September of 2008, Vanessa, she, she crosses Anthony while she was at the bank. Anthony was standing by his bike and on his cell phone, and he kind of made a point to say out loud that no one wanted to celebrate his birthday with him. And she told him, like, hey, I don't celebrate birthdays, but happy birthday. Uh, eventually, she agreed to go back to his home with him. Vanessa said, as soon as you stepped into the house, there was an eerie feeling and. As you walked up the stairs, you could smell something foul, like fucking outrageous. So once inside his room, they start doing drugs. Anthony tells Vanessa she doesn't deserve what's about to happen to her. That's when this man turns around and he, he decks her in the face. He punches her and he tells her to take her clothes off. At first, Vanessa, she's like, no, but eventually she... She complies, and she even said, like, when she looked into his eyes, like, it, it, he looked evil, like his eyes were black globes. He threatened to lock her in a closet and made sure to tell her that no one could hear her scream. In addition to that bullshit, while, while he's raping her, he said he was doing it because he hated women 
who smoked crack like his ex. Anthony proceeded to rape and beat Vanessa for several hours and well into the morning. In between the assaults, he would leave the room to use the bathroom or call his sister and talk about when the kids would come visit next. Like, get the fuck out of here. And at one point, Vanessa asked to use the bathroom. And now we're into the next morning. Anthony says, yes, you can go use the bathroom. And I'm just going to say this here. Go watch her testimony on the stand. Because this woman's strength, like, I'll continue. But she describes what she saw on her way to the bathroom. She saw something on the floor that looked like a headless body. And basically the whole time while she's sobbing on the stand as she's going over what was happening to her and what she saw, Anthony, they pan over to Anthony Sewell's face and he's just looking at her with that blank ass expression. Like, I want to beat his ass. So as she's in the bathroom, at this point, she knew that this was it for her. As soon as she left the bathroom, he was going to kill her. And she was just trying to just grapple to understand what the fuck she saw because she knew that it was a headless corpse and it was sitting upright against the wall. But Vanessa, she decided to pretend as if she didn't see anything. There was no change in her expression. She didn't freak out and cry. He could not know that she saw the body and she had to act like everything was normal. Anthony said she's, she was going to tell and he was about to kill her, but she promised that she wouldn't. And as they walked to the front door and down the stairs, she made sure to walk side by side so she couldn't get in front of him because she knew that the moment that she got in front of him, he was going to kill her and drag her back up those stairs. But Vanessa made it out and no one helped her. On a Sunday morning, as she's bleeding, walking down the street, asking for help, Church had just gotten out and they looked at her with judgment and some of them laughed at her. She tried to contact the police and they refused to come to her to take a report. Despite knowing that she had been raped and beaten over the course of several hours and that there was a headless corpse in a side room in his house, they still wouldn't come and Vanessa never went to the police station to file the report. Her testimony was so shattering that they needed to call for a break because people were losing their shit in there. But remember the headless corpse for later and... Just keep in mind that if the police had come to investigate, they could have saved six to eight other victims. Like, whoo, my voice is cracking because, goddamn. Um, so Michelle Mason went missing in October and Tanya in November. And then Anthony attacks a woman named Gladys Wade. December 8th of 2008, Gladys is walking westbound on 123rd Street when she runs into Anthony. He wishes her a Merry Christmas and asks if she would like to drink some beer with him. And Gladys is like, no, but Merry Christmas. As she's walking away, Anthony grabbed her and put her in a chokehold before dragging her up his driveway and into his house. Ooh, so Gladys wakes up. And when she wakes up, she's lying on the third floor of his house. She tries to call out for help and Anthony hears her, runs back into the room and he starts to beat her and tells her to take off her clothes. Gladys said, hell the fuck no, and she started to fight back. She was able to scratch his face. Uh, she grabbed him below the belt. 
uh, anything she could to just get him off of her, and she took off running when she had the chance. She made it to the third floor hallway before Anthony grabbed her, and they both fell down the stairs. He was able to get on top of Gladys and started to strangle her while saying, Bitch, stop screaming. You're going to die. But Gladys was able to fight him off, and she ran out of the house. Anthony chases Gladys into a restaurant, and she's begging them to use the phone, and Anthony comes in after and lies and says that Gladys had stolen something from him. They both got they they both were basically told to leave. But Gladys waited until Anthony was out of sight and she takes off and she's able to flag down a police officer. She had visible injuries and evidence of a struggle was inside and outside of Anthony's house. So the officers arrested Anthony. Then they released him after 48 hours because the arresting officer mislabeled the report as rape, even though Gladys told her she fought him off um, before he could rape her. The assistant city prosecutor determined that there was insufficient evidence to file charges, and Kim Yvette Smith went missing in January of 2009, and then Anthony attacks a woman named Tanja Doss in April. I, I also want to point something else out about this, um, because I said I was coming for fucking everybody. So I have to let y'all know just the misconduct. It's so criminal. The detective who presented um, the case, her name is, and she's retired from the Cleveland Sex Crimes Unit. It's Detective Georgia Hussein. Later in an indictment, it was determined that Georgia presented the case to the prosecutor without reviewing evidence collected by patrol officers, including photos and clothing items collected from Anthony's home. Georgia said that Gladys did not have visible injuries consistent with her version of events, but she never reviewed medical records or photos taken from Gladys after the attack. Georgia also went back to Anthony's home to meet with him after he was released from jail, but never reported it to her supervisors. If she had properly investigated Gladys's claim, she would have seen his 15-year sentence for the attempted rape of Melvet Sockwell. While inside of his home, she claimed she didn't smell anything, and that viewing the crime scene didn't change her opinion that Gladys and Anthony's versions of the story were conflicting. <sighs> so now he's able to attack another woman named um, Tanja. And she had gone over to his home to watch the Cavaliers game and do drugs. And they're, they're basically hanging out when Anthony grabs her and tells her, and I quote, Bitch, you can be the next crackhead bitch dead up the street with nobody to give a fuck about you, end quote. He then told her to knock three times on the floor if she wanted to live and to take her clothes off and to lie in the bed next to him. Tanja, she, she curls up in a fetal position and goes to sleep. And the next morning, Anthony's acting like nothing happened. Right after she left, she calls a friend, Nancy Cobbs, and tells her that Anthony attacked and choked her. Nancy Cobbs went missing two days later. Amelda Hunter, Janice Webb, Talisha Fordson, and Diane Turner disappeared between the months of April and September. So September 22nd, 2009, Anthony meets up with a woman named Latundra Billups. And she was at the time mutual friends with him and his ex, Lori. They were supposed to, you know, drink and do drugs, and Anthony convinced LaTundra to go to the second floor of the house with him. LaTundra asked him about some rumors going around that he had attacked someone, and he's like, girl, no, I didn't do that shit. 
And so she she goes she trusts him. She believes him. Um, because I just also want to point out people were shocked to find out that Anthony Sowell was a fucking demon from hell because they all said that he was easygoing, knew how to talk to the ladies, a very convincing man. So they go to the second floor and he starts to, you know, have her spinning around and she's thinking that he's hyping her head up. Anthony clocks her on the side of the head and forces her to remove her clothes. After forcing oral sex on her, he raped Latundra vaginally from behind while choking her with an extension cord until she passed out. After several hours, she, she wakes up and Anthony is sitting in a chair on the other side of the room looking at her like he's shocked. He did not expect for this woman to survive what he had just done to her. And he told her he was going to kill her and then himself because he knew he was going to jail. And she's just like, I'm sorry. And she promises not to tell anyone. He apologizes for attacking her and said he would replace her sweater because he had torn it off her body. On her way out, Anthony's like, you gonna come back tomorrow? Like, and I'm sure she's just like, yeah, sure, sure, sure. But she got the fuck out of Dodge and filed a police report at the police station and identified Anthony as her attacker and allowed them to take photos of her injuries. The next morning, Latundra went to the university hospital to report Anthony raping her. But it took Detective Richard Durst a little over a fucking month to get her statement at the sex crimes unit office. So while there's so many missed communications and, and him not picking up the phone and doing his goddamn job, Sean Morris was attacked on October 20th of 2009. So Sean, she, she's waiting for the bus at 140th Street in Kinsman. And she saw Anthony get off a bus across the street and walk to a nearby house to buy drugs. He then walks over to her and they begin to chat it up and um, they get to drinking. But it's early in the morning around 7 a.m. And Sean realizes that she needs to leave the area so her children wouldn't see her drunk on their way to school. Anthony offered for her to come to his house and sober up. After drinking and smoking, she leaves but remembers that she left her ID. And so now she has to come back. The moment this lady gets inside of the house, Anthony put her in a chokehold and he drug her up the stairs and back into his room. He raped Sean vaginally and anally while telling her how much he hated women who walked the streets. He told her that she has a husband, but look at where she is and a whole bunch of other bullshit. I really hate how he, just the shit that comes out of his mouth. Like, yeah, I have a husband and I wouldn't be doing this if you weren't raping me. And now as soon as he walks out of the room, Sean has no clothes on, but she decides to jump from the third level of the house. And unfortunately, she hit the cement sidewalk and passed out. Like, I get it. This was her only fucking option um, because other reports says that she starts screaming. So Anthony was running around the house to try and shut the windows. And this is when she jumps. Anthony runs outside, he's butt-ass naked too, and he's trying to drag her back inside, and people are starting to form a crowd because they're watching this, and he's telling him that his wife fell out of the window while they were having sex. Luckily, someone told him to get the fuck off of her, and they dialed 911, but Anthony was able to ride in the ambulance and tell them the same BS story that Sean was his wife. She woke up two days later with an aneurysm, a cracked skull, eight broken ribs, 
and two broken hands. Anthony told her if she went to the police, he was going to kill her. So she did not go and make a report. But on October 28th, an arrest and search warrant was issued for Anthony Sowell because of the rape of Latundra Billups. Around 6.50 p.m., Detective Durst and members from SWAT, they pull up to Anthony's address, and Anthony, he's not at home, but they begin to sweep the rooms one by one until they find a locked door at the south end of the hallway of the third floor attic area. They kick down the door and find two decomposing bodies lying face down on the floor. They were covered with piles of clothing, and one was wrapped in a, pla in a black plastic bag up to her knees. A shovel was lying in between them. The homicide unit was contacted and they began looking for Anthony's ass immediately. And Anthony, he's chilling at a sister's house on East 130th Street. And he's playing video games with his nephew. And this is when SWAT executed the warrant. His neighbor, Debbie Madison, drove over there, goes to the door and tells him that the police found two dead bodies inside of his house. Now, she, she offers to drive him back to the house and he gets in. And while driving him home, he said, and I quote, it's all going to come out now. That girl made me do it, end quote. They get to his house and Anthony punks the fuck out because he sees all the police activity and he asks to be taken back to his sister's house. Soon as she dropped him off, Debbie took her ass to the police station and she tells them where he was. But by the time they get there, Anthony's left. October 31st, 2009, after receiving a tip, police arrest Anthony on East 97th in Dickens. And y'all, we about to get into some really wild shit. So just hold on, hold on with me. So investigators said that the stench of decay was overwhelming and the closest he could get to the house was 15 feet from the open door before it got horrible. They couldn't figure out how the neighbors didn't know something was wrong. That that's that's the thing. They all knew something was wrong. So Lori, his ex-girlfriend, said the house began to smell in 2006. After they broke up, she would visit him and he would have injuries. Blood on the floor, his face would be scratched up as well as his neck. And Anthony would tell her that he, he had just been robbed. One time she saw him digging a hole in his backyard and dumping the contents of a bucket into that hole. Another time he told her, I got rid of them. But Lori did not believe him. Also, he wouldn't let Lori go to the third level of the house. For months leading up to Anthony's arrest, the neighbors gagged whenever they walked past his house. Someone said their eyes would water, but they all shrugged it the fuck off and they blamed the sausage store, Anthony's bad odor, or the garbage bins Anthony picked through for scrap metal. Not one single person called the police. No one ever thought to. No one ever fucking cared. And the owner of the Imperial Beverage, <laughs> the one that goes by Sam... He said, and I quote, I like Anthony. He gave me a headache from that smell. Oh my goodness. Especially in the summertime. I lost a lot of customers because of it, end quote. Sam recalled the time he saw Anthony abusing his dog in the street, saying he would lift the dog with its chain and collar and swing it around. Sam told the jurors that he had no sympathy for the 11 women and asked them what, what did they expect from them? Did they want the police to have babysat them before they got killed? Sam sold Anthony the bags used to cover the bodies. In the documentary Unseen, Sam said he wished there were a million of Anthony so well and that he took out the garbage. When they asked him who, who was the garbage, he said the woman that he killed. 
the women who were so badly decomposed that an entomologist from the Cleveland Museum of Natural History had to help figure out how they died. And I'll say it from the rooftops. You, you go to black neighborhoods, take black money with a fucking smile, and this is what you say? Like, I, I don't even know why they didn't arrest him as an accomplice. Um, but I'm going to tell you exactly how these 11 women were found and the conditions of their bodies. So Talisha Forsen and Diane Turner were found lying on the floor of the front room on the third floor. Talisha was nude from the waist down and she was lying under a pile of clothes. The ligature around her neck was multicolored t-shirt and her personal belongings were in different parts of the house. Anthony had stolen her, her food stamp card and was using it after he had killed her. Talisha died May 31st, 2009 and her cause of death was asphyxiation by ligature strangulation. Diane was nude from the waist down. She had no ligatures or bindings, but her body, her body was so badly decomposed it was determined her cause of death was due to undetermined homicidal violence. Diane died on or around July 15, 2009. Janice Webb was found buried in a mound of dirt and plywood under the basement stairs. Her body was wrapped in a large sheet of translucent plastic. It was determined she was a victim of prolonged kidnapping and the shirt that Anthony used to gag her was still tied in her mouth and knotted behind her head. Anthony strangled Janice with a green belt that was still tightly wrapped around her neck, and she was bound at the wrist with shoelaces. Her cause of death was asphyxia by ligature strangulation, and she died on or around June 3, 2009. Nancy Cobbs was found stuffed in a garbage bag and was lying on the floor of the front room next to Talisha and Diane. A bag was placed on the top half of her body and another bag was placed on the bottom half from the opposite end. Nancy was badly decomposed and reduced to a skeleton in soft tissue that weighed only 46 pounds. Shoelaces were tied around her wrists and as a ligature around her neck and her cause of death was a result of asphyxiation by ligature strangulation. Tachana Culver was found buried in a mound of dirt in a crawl space that was cut out of the wall in the front room of the third floor. And she was lying face down and was wrapped in multiple plastic garbage bags that were tied together with gray duct tape. And her hands were bound with knotted rope and her wrists were bound with a knotted rope and a brown sock. Tashana's hyoid bone, her hyoid bone was broken, indicating manual strangulation and that she had put up a fight. That she had put up a fight. And she died on or around June 15th, 2008. LaShonda Long's skull was found in a bucket and the rest of her body was never found. The bucket looked as if an animal had chewed on it and her cause of death is undetermined homicidal violence. No decomposition could be found inside of the bucket so investigators could never tell at what point her body was placed there. But Vanessa Gay remembered seeing a headless corpse um, but again that body was not found among the 11. LaShonda died on or around August 8, 2008. Tanya Carmichael Crystal Dozier, Amelda Hunter, Michelle Mason, and Kim Smith were found buried in shallow graves in the backyard. Tanya was the first to be removed from the graves. She was completely nude, and her body was wrapped in two plastic bags and a white mattress cover. A black electrical cord from a cell phone or camera charger was still wrapped around her neck, and it was wrapped so tightly that the impressions were still visible on her de decaying flesh when it was removed. Her wrists were bound together with two white socks and a piece of string, and her cause of death was asphyxia by ligature strangulation. 
Tanya died on or around November 8th, November 11th, 2008. Crystal Dozier was nude from the waist down and badly decomposed. Her wrists were bound above her head and her ankles were tied together with a wire cable. The cloth ligature was still knotted around her neck and she was wrapped in two layers of translucent plastic, which was tied together with black cables and gray duct tape. Crystal died on or around June 10th of 2007 and her cause of death was asphyxiation by ligature strangulation. Amelda Hunter was nude from the waist down and was wrapped in multiple, bla multiple black plastic garbage bags. When she was found in the rear of the backyard, the shoulder strap from a bag or briefcase was still tightly bound around her neck. Trace evidence found carpet fibers from the third floor. Her cause of death was asphyxiation by ligature strangulation and Amelda died on or around April 18th of 2009. Michelle Mason's body was uncovered, rolled up inside of a black comforter and an orange blanket, which was then wrapped in two plastic bags and tied together with gray duct tape. She was nude from the waist down and lying in a prone position. Anthony left the used condom inside the wrappings with her body. And a brown sock was still tied around her neck and her cause of death was asphyxiation by ligature strangulation. Trace evidence uncovered carpet samples consistent with the carpeting in the front room of the house. Anthony had left her body there for some time prior to burying her outside. Kim Smith was found buried in the backyard covered in three plastic bags and a seven foot sheet of translucent plastic material. Kim's body was too decomposed to determine the cause of death so the cause was undetermined homicidal violence. So identifying them was pretty difficult because the communities that these women belonged to did not trust the police. They understood that they were corrupt assholes and they were urging them to submit blood samples, but they were terrified that the police were going to use that to convict them on other charges. But the NAACP and local pastors were able to calm the panic down by becoming kind of like a middleman for those who were too scared to go to the coroner's office or the authorities. Authorities who are up and down that race, drugs, uh, women who did prostitution had nothing to do um, with the way they acted when it came to investigating these cases. Remember when I told y'all Vanessa Gay, she never went to the police station after they refused to come to her. All, all that happened after that was that she spiraled into depression and further drug addiction. But Vanessa Gay's story was finally heard when she had to show up to court for a probation violation in 2010. Now, she knew that if she spoke about it in front of a judge and a stenographer, they had no choice but to commit her words to record. She's absolutely correct. And she said that within the last year, she was arrested for having an open container of alcohol in a public area. That is when she tried to tell the officers what Anthony Sowell had done to her. They, in turn, laughed in her fucking face. And one of them said, she's just mad because she didn't get to smoke with Anthony Sowell. End quote. Mind you, she never went down to the station because she knew that they would only see her as a drug addict and they would think that she was crazy. So she she had to take her opportunity to get heard when she was going to court for a probation violation because going to the police, they did nothing. They only laughed in her face about it. But during Anthony's interviews, he removed himself from accountability he blamed women, drug addicts, prostitutes, and said that he blacked out but believes he had to punish them. 
In July of 2011, in an 85-count indictment, a jury convicted him of 11 counts of aggravated murder, each containing death penalty specifications. August 10th, jurors recommended the death penalty, and he was sentenced to death for each count. So just some of the things that the families had to say. Tanya Carmichael's daughter, Donita, she said, In my opinion, you're going to hell for your actions. Anthony, you are an animal, and hell awaits your arrival. In, a, in the impact statements, the family described how Anthony ruined them. Kim Smith's father, Don, he cried and said, He took my heart, my life, and I might as well die too, because he killed a part of me. End quote. Crystal Dozier's mother, Florence, who was also the aunt of Imelda Hunter, like, fuck my heart. Uh, Miss Florence, she thanked the courts for bringing the 11 families closure and said, To Anthony, you have the nerve to get up here and plead for your life. But what about Crystal, Nancy, Kim, Amelda, Tanya, Michelle, Janice, Talisha, Diane, Tashana, and Lashonda? They didn't want to die either, but you took their lives I'm not going to say a lot about what's on my mind. That is for me and God to work out. But one thing I will tell you, whatever time you have left on this earth, I hope you never find peace. Because one thing's for sure, you will have to answer to God for what you have done because you didn't give life and you had no right to take life away. But one thing I want you to know, I have to forgive you in order for God to forgive me. And now may all the 11 women rest in peace. End quote. So December 6, 2011, the Sewell home was demolished and a garden was erected in its place 12 years later called the Garden of Eleven Angels. Before his sentence could be carried out, he died at the age of 61 from terminal illness. And I believe he was trying to appeal up until he died and they just kept getting denied. Cleveland paid out more than $1.3 million to the victims and their families to settle lawsuits over how the detectives handled the investigations into so well. I believe there are some lawsuits still going on, but the attorneys have been deleting and refiling to give themselves more time to prepare, which is bullshit. But yeah, the families, they never let off of Georgia's neck and right, rightfully so, stay on her fucking ass. And so yeah, y'all, they, they ended up having to pay out and that goes back to what I was trying to tell you, how much Cleveland has had to pay out in, in lawsuits because they don't do the fucking job. Uh, so now this is going to be the conclusion of the Cleveland Strangler, y'all. May Anthony so well continue to fucking rot. And I would appreciate five stars on Apple to compensate for the bad stars I get when I cuss people out on social media. And you can find me on all platforms, primarily TikTok at Black Girl underscore True Crime, Instagram Black Girl underscore True Crime Podcast. Facebook is Black Girl True Crime Podcast. And my personal TikTok is K K A Y Simone93. My email is Black Girl True Crime Podcast at gmail.com. And I appreciate y'all tuning in. And I will catch y'all next time. Cause I gotta get the fuck on. I've been doing this for far too long, y'all. Good night.